Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast that believes that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host for today's extra show, Stefan Rolnick, and I'm really excited about this show. Uh, We're taking a bit of a break from day-to-day politics to play you an interview that I did with Darren Jones, MP for Bristol Northwest, a bit earlier this week. Darren is part of a new and really exciting generation of Labour MPs who are serious about getting things done and getting back into government. He's also the convener of the Future Britain Group, the parliamentary group of MPs set up as a space for the party's Social Democrats and Democratic Socialists to discuss big ideas for the future. We talk about what it's like to be the first Darren elected to Parliament, why the Future Britain Group is so important and what a Green New Deal would actually look like. Just before we get started, this interview was recorded before the events of Wednesday evening where Chris Williamson was readmitted to the Labour Party after his suspension earlier this year. As many of us know, Williamson has a long history of baiting the Jewish community and so Progress has launched the Kick Out Chris campaign to demand action from our General Secretary to resuspend Chris Williamson. So head over to www.kickoutchris.com to learn more about the campaign and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the pod. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Darren Jones. So we're lucky enough today to be joined by Darren Jones, MP for Bristol North West here in his lovely corner office in Port <laughs> Cullis House. Um, how close are we to Boris Johnson's office here? I, I think we're one floor below. Okay, so you might hear some head scratching and grumbling. You, you'll note the holes in the roof where we've been trying to listen, but <laughs> sadly no gossip to give you. Well, thanks for having us. First question, you're going to have to tell me if this is true. How does it feel to be the first Darren elected to Parliament? <laughs> so I put this joke into my maiden speech, largely because I had written a pretty serious one about Brexit and the future of the country. And the new Tories were being quite funny and I felt a bit pressured. So I put this in as the only joke I really had in my armory at the stage. Uh, and it was the only thing that got news coverage. Uh, and it was one of the most read stories on the BBC website that weekend. First Darren to be elected. Is it scary doing that first speech? How much do you prepare for it? Do you do you have to you find you over prepare, under prepare, see how it goes? I don't think it's scary. I, I did I did go into the chamber 
after we'd finished business the day before and the doorkeepers let me in and I practiced it by myself in the chamber. And the reason you do that is just because it means you get a feel for the room in terms of your volume and how your voice carries, which if you've not had much chance in the chamber mm -hmm. before is probably the most newest thing you need to deal with. But on, on the day, it was it was, it was was okay. It was good. I'm picturing it like walking out onto a football pitch, kind of taking in the stats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's start with you. You're the MP for Bristol. And again, if Wikipedia is correct, that's where you grew up. Yeah. And... Bristol is a city known for its kind of political volatility. You know, it's got very strong opinions on kind of all all range of different issues from, you know, animal rights, climate change, all these different things. But I'm kind of interested, was your experience growing up in Bristol political in any way? Uh, not in the slightest. And this is this is this is probably uh, part of the Bristol story. You know, a lot of people that aren't from Bristol see Bristol as it's portrayed in The Guardian. Mm. You know, the Clifton Suspension Bridge, yeah. lots of vegans, you know, I declare my interest. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, a very greeny kind of yeah. studenty, independently minded city. And that's, that's true. There's a mm. buzz to it. Uh, but actually, a lot of that kind of comes from the middle bit of Bristol in Bristol West. And much like other cities, when you move out into the areas, you get different tones and different communities and different natures to... Uh, to the areas that you represent. And my seat in Bristol Northwest kind of goes from the middle bit of that kind of hipster mm. guardianista style out to some pretty traditional labor working classes, which is where I grew up. And uh, when I was growing up, they weren't really that that political. And that was a seat that you surprisingly for some people took from to the me. Tories yeah. in 2017. <laughs> yes. That well, was a surprise to you as well. Well, it, well only because I'd run in the 2015 election and it was a key seat for us at that election and I was selected in 2012 so I'd been working the patch for three years spent an absolute fortune on it both in terms of time and money mm. we were told we were neck and neck and then we lost by four and a half thousand votes in 2015 18 months later with you know awful polling for the Labour Party and a bellwether marginal no one thought we were going to win it but then we got the majority of 5,000 I have today I think that's something that's super hard for some people to kind of fathom the amount of time and mm. emotional energy that goes into you know, running for a seat. It's not something you get paid to do. I mean, what was, what's that, that emotional roller coaster must have been pretty severe. I mean, it's a huge, huge ask, especially in the marginal key seats. You know, when I was 23, I ran against Jeffrey Cox in Torridge and West Devon. No uh, and, you know, there was no pressure at all. And actually, I bucked a trend then and came fourth behind UKIP. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that was pretty, pretty easy. That was just enjoying the ride. You know, I presume that if you end up in a safer seat or a safe seat, um, the pressure is different too. But when you're in a frontline marginal seat, the types of seats you've got to win to be in government, you know, the pressure on you from the party, from your members, from the public is is enormous. And, you know, hats off to all of those parliamentary candidates doing that work today because it's a huge job. So another interesting fact is you started out as a science student. Mm. What brought you to politics? What possessed you to uh, move from this kind of stable, you know, peaceful <laughs> area of the world right into the heart of Westminster? Well, I ended up doing science because that's what I was interested in at school. Uh, but I, I became a lawyer in the end. That's my my day job. Uh, but politics has always been a consistent for me, uh, broadly because of my background, not because of party politics. So I grew up on a you know traditional working class council estate in my constituency in Bristol Northwest. You know these were the, the late later years of Margaret Thatcher, early years of John Major. You know I saw things and lived things growing up in a family where. Mum and dad was working, but before the days of the national minimum wage, struggling to make ends meet. Me, I mean, a you know traditional Labour story, but I came to politics because of my class, not because of my party politics, and that's just stayed with me all the way through. So I'm interested to hear. I mean, does the scientific your scientific background impact on your values and your 
the approach you bring to politics right now? Because I know you sit on some select committees to do with science. And me personally, I also came from a scientific background, which I can hear my colleagues in the Progress Office <laughs> laughing about now because they say I always mention it. There, I mean, there are quite a lot of crossovers. It's about, you know, democratizing knowledge and power often. It's about it's kind of like politics in the sense that it's neutral depending on who you want it to work for. You know, science can work in the interest of big pharma or it can work in the interest of mm. you know, patients who need healthcare. What's that been like combining the two? I mean, I think the parallels both from science and law and then into being an MP that I would draw is one, it's about evidence. You know, I'm all about evidence-based policy. We all have our values and our views, but we shouldn't be driven by ideology alone. We should be driven by what works. The other thing is wanting to help people who perhaps don't have power in our society. Now, that might in science be a case of, you know, I primarily worked in human uh, medicine and biomedicine to think about how do we treat people better. And then clearly in law, law is also about power and giving a voice to those who don't have it. And those are parallels with being an MP. I mean, you talk about evidence and facts and I think and the importance of them and I think one of the things that kind of you know chimes with is the Brexit campaign and there's there's I mean I know there's a huge swing for Remain amongst the scientific community in the UK mm. and a lot of the Remain argument is based on facts. Do you think sometimes facts get in the way of the way we make our case and that we're not kind of striving for that emotional case rather than the you know fact-based case? Yeah I mean we need emotion in our politics because you know it's what we care about what type of country we want to live in and to um, create. But the, the difficulty with all of these things is that you don't always know what the answer is and therefore there are no ready facts. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean facts aren't important or relevant. It just means you've still got to figure them out. And mm -hmm. that's okay, right? Yeah. And you, you figure things out by things going wrong. So learning lessons is also okay. But politicians, we don't like to admit when we've changed our mind or when mm -hmm. something's gone wrong. And I think we should be much more open to doing that. Well, I want to come on to things that are going wrong. Tory leadership race is, you know, well underway. What do you think we've learned from it? Because I think, I mean, it already feels like it's been going on for ages. I think that, you know, the days of Esther McVeigh rowing with Lorraine Kelly on, yeah. on, on Twitter, you know, I mean, that feels like so long ago already. But over the weekend, we've had the stuff about Boris Johnson and what was going on in his house and his neighbours and the rest of it. What are we learning from this race? I, I would make two observations. Uh, firstly, the... Uh, on the whole, Tory MPs are scared about their individual futures and their party and not focusing enough on the country. Uh, and also from the leadership candidates that they have a complete lack of vision for what they want to do as Prime Minister um, of Britain. And also a failure to be able to provide any solutions to any of the problems that we're talking about. Now, you mix all of that together and it's a pretty depressing state of affairs. What it says to me is there's a huge opportunity for an effective Labour Party to be able to take them to bits, right? You know, yeah. they, they have no credibility. We should be massively ahead in the polls and and ready for government. Well, let's let's talk about the Labour Party. I mean, I think the interesting thing about this conversation is often people have disagreements from the starting point with the Labour Party. We think, depending on who you are and what you bring to the conversation, you might think we're in a different position, you know, than someone else. So some people might think, you know, we're not we're not advocating for Remain. There's some people who think that Labour's a straight up Remain party. Just from your perspective, to start us off, where does Labour sit right now in all of this chaos? Well, in terms of the Brexit chaos, I mean, you know, Labour has to be a party of Remain and reform. It's what our members want. It's largely what our voters want. And it's what we know is the right thing to do for the country. Uh, now, clearly, there'll be colleagues that disagree with me on that. I respect their views. I respect the fact that they take a different view, but they must also respect the fact that I and many of us 
take the view that we do. Now, Brexit is a problem for all of the parties of government because it's a national division that's represented in the seats that we represent. But I don't think, honestly, anybody can say that Brexit is a good thing for the country and therefore we need to be making the case as to why we should remain in reform. I mean, one of the things that I worry about is to what extent, you know, all the main parties, but especially the Labour Party, how we're going to survive this pressure that's being put on the party system and the party structures. And like you mentioned, one of the big aspects of that is, you know, really great MPs who, you know, we might share lots of opinions with on lots of different issues and they're great constituency MPs who who disagree with us fundamentally on this. And I think actually they bring an important question to this conversation, which is, you know are we the party of Remain or are we the party of Remainers? And I think those are two different things. I mean, do you have a sense in which we can navigate that ground and be the party of Remain without just being a party for Remainers that doesn't involve sitting on the fence? Well, it has to answer the questions that many Leave voters voted for in the first place. So there's many things around, you know, regional imbalances in the economy, um, you know, the fact that we've got economic growth in the cities and not in the towns, you know, a Labour agenda for government, uh, even with not even without it being in the context of the Brexit narrative, has to be talking about what it will do to invest in those communities up and down the country to improve people's living standards, improve our public services and so on and so forth. That's something that all Labour MPs will agree on, regardless of whether they are mm. Remainers or, or or not. And Brexit will be resolved at some point soon, hopefully. <laughs> uh, but hopefully. Uh, so, you know, we that's why we need to continue to act professionally and respect each other and understand our difference of opinion on the Brexit issue, but recognise that we do need to stick together and come back together in order to deliver this agenda for the country. I mean, I heard tones of optimism there that you feel like, the, you know, Brexit, the Brexit, the end of Brexit is on the horizon. I'm interested to know because it seems like it's a really, really difficult time to be in politics, you know, regardless of where you sit in the commons, you know, the pressure that's coming from the media, from social media, from your constituents. And I, I know most people who work in politics, I think, you know, have had moments of despair over the last few months. What helps you stay hopeful in this environment? Hmm. Well, firstly, I'm in a I'm in a much more positive situation than many of my colleagues. I rep represent a constituency that was by a majority to remain, and that's increased. Mm. Uh, that's my view. Mm. So I'm in a position where I share the view of my constituents. So I I don't get some of the kind of grief that some of my colleagues get or that have to take the difficult decisions that some of my colleagues have had to take where they take a different view to the majority view in the 2016 referendum in their constituency what gives me hope uh, well there's 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 one positive answer and one negative answer i'll give you the negative first we have to fix this and there is a future after it uh, and we've got to be part of that process you know sometimes it might be easier to just opt out of politics and kind of put your head in the sand and ignore it and say Look, i'm not having anything to do with that i'm just going to live my life positively over here but actually what are you going to be left with after that i mean there's huge things that we need to fix for the country and the world and we've got to be in the midst of it fixing it so that's that's my hopefulness about you know remaining part of this kind of political process right the bit around hope um, is and this is going to sound really cheesy, but it's the British people. Mm. And the reason I say that is because um, I still think this is only going to be resolved by further instructions from the British people. I don't think Parliament's going to be able to fix it. I might be wrong, but that's my kind of best guess at the moment. The question is, how do you do that? 
you either do it through a public vote, which is obviously something that I've supported since before my election and all the way through. Um, but I also think it might come through in a general election. And in a general election, if the Labour Party is in the right place, in terms of mm. advocating Remain and reform, I think we might be able to win that argument. Another issue where it's difficult to stay hopeful, but is a Another issue that you're passionate about as well is climate change. Yep. And I have conversations with people who are often progressives. And I think the thing that terrifies me the most is how people are happy or seem to be happy and their guilt seems to be assuaged by kind of incremental change. Hmm. And I think much smarter people have made this observation that is actually to do with the way the human brain works and that actually to fathom the scale of, you know, the situation we're in is to just lead you to complete despair and so to kind of stay functioning we have to kind of put that in a box how do we square that circle how do we and this applies to voting as well you're saying people are kind of turning away in a feeling of a sense of hopelessness and one of the issues where we can't afford to lose hope is climate change mm. how do we square that circle how do you say to somebody this is awful more awful than maybe you can imagine but you can't turn away now we've got to do something about it well there's no choice right i mean you can't you can't just be like, hey, don't worry about it. Or just, you know, yeah. or die. <laughs> I mean... I mean, sorry, that, that isn't funny because it's true. No, but you can't do that, right? I mean, it's just ridiculous. So you, you have to say to people, look, we've got to fix this. Mm -hmm. this is, these are the ways that we can do it. Now, the Tories, you know, they, you know, Theresa May's legislative for net zero, they talk a bit about this, but actually they're really not putting their foot on the gas, for mm -hmm. one of a better pun, um, to get this fixed. <laughs> uh, we on the Labour Party side have to because we're more comfortable with the idea of government intervention and fiscal stimulus to resolve some of these issues. Um, I do think we mustn't use the climate change challenge as a way to justify uh, kind of uh, unevidence-based economic reforms mm. on the hard left. I think mm. you can provide uh, pragmatic solutions to this. Mm. Um, but we have to make the case. But it's not just an issue domestically. We need to make making the case internationally and the government's failing on that too. So there's lots of stuff that we can do that isn't going to radically change the day-to-day -day lives that people lead today and that's the message we need to give them yeah i completely agree i think often in these conversations means and ends get completely confused but to those people who do care about this issue and are kind of up at night worrying about this you know what's going on in that building over there that you see that's starting to move i know there's been some been some talk about citizens assemblies and stuff mm. like that is stuff starting to happen would you say yeah I, I, and actually pretty quickly off the back of the Extinction Rebellion um, and the climate strikers that the kids are doing and all that stuff, which is, you know, huge credit mm. to them. I was deeply frustrated as a new MP interested in this that we didn't talk about it. Mm. I mean, it got to the point where we had one debate at that point within the first time within the two years that I'd been here. And if by the time it got to me, I had three minutes. Yeah. And I spent then the three minutes arguing about the fact that I only had three minutes, which may have been a missed opportunity, but mm. it was just completely hopeless. So I instigated the Clean Growth Inquiry on my Science and Technology Select Committee, which is doing some good work. But then all of these public um, events happened and it really piled the political pressure on. We've now debated it a couple of times in Parliament. And my select committee, Science and Technology, is collaborating now with five others being led by Rachel Reeves at Bayes on doing these citizens' assemblies via the select committees because we're able to do that in our own independent right. And I think that's a hugely positive step forward. Climate change and politics is almost like the ultimate crossover of complicated ideas that is super important to communicate to the public. You know, when you sit down in a science communication course anywhere, climate change is the ultimate complicated problem really hard to define in a simple story and your life is easier if you ignore it and i think there's lots of 
issues like that in politics are you finding that you're kind of learning all the time about these new ways to communicate i think you know it's interesting the kind of things that go viral from um you know rory stewart talking about believe in the bin but also you know the climate strikes have really taken off in a way that feels almost impossible to stop are you are you kind of learning every day about what what chimes with people yeah but again on the evidence and pragmatism bit there's an important job for politicians to do to not not say oh well we can't do that because of this but to put forward a credible case i was um publicly frustrated via twitter on some of the announcements of our Green New Deal. I probably shouldn't have mm. shared my views on Twitter, but I did. You know, when we announced we were going to give everyone like free solar panels, I mean, that's just a ridiculous policy suggestion mm. and, a, and, and, and a waste of money. Mm. What we should be doing is giving everyone heat pumps to replace their gas boilers mm. because we know that we need to decarbonize the heat network as a higher priority to what is a pretty low, low value return on your investment for solar panels. Mm. So I'm very conscious that we don't just respond to this in a kind of superficial mm. soundbitey kind of way that we do it properly. And I still think we've got a bit of work to do to get that right. So I find that interesting because I think that's one of the things that progressives on you know this wing of the party have really struggled to find the language on, which is how you convince people that you're radical and you believe that radical action needs mm. to be taken on climate change. But is that the, the nuts and bolts of the argument? We're not just radical, we're also serious and we take that responsibility seriously. I, I suppose the challenge is like renationalizing national grid, mm. I don't think is the right policy, but it's a sexier policy than I'm going to give you a heat pump. Mm. Right. I mean, how do you make heat pump sexy? I have no idea. Right. <laughs> and this is the this is this is the problem. And actually, the detail is so technical. The, the reason renationalizing the national grid is no is, is, is there's no point because it's because they've already digitized their network. They're already ready to mm -hmm. deal with 100 percent renewable. It's the distribution networks that have more work to mm -hmm. do, and we've got more work to do on renewables. So actually, spending prioritizing public debt to renationalize the national grid doesn't take us any way forward to solving the problems that we really have. Mm -hmm. But by the time I've had this conversation with someone, they've kind of gone, they've got a bit bored, right? So <laughs> you're right. I don't know the answer, but we've got to try and we've got to try and bring evidence and pragmatic policy that is deliverable and cost effective. And the priority of politics in terms of political spending, in a way that kind of doesn't bore people and shows that we have the radical but real solutions to tackling these challenges. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hello, Progressive Britain podcast co-host and email writer Stefan Rolnick here. I've hijacked the podcast equipment and taken it into the podcast bunker to bring you a very special message about the Progress Daily email. Now, if you didn't know already, the Progress Daily simplifies the news, breaking down the forces behind the headlines, calling out the BS and making sure that you've got the sharpest analysis on the biggest issues of the day. We won't fill your inbox with more of the same. We know you're busy, firing off hot takes on Twitter, sending hilarious memes about Boris to your group chat. So sit back and let us trawl through the boring stuff for you. Subscribe to The Progress Daily to cut through the noise with insight and inspiration from myself and the Progress team. It's like the news, except you don't feel awful afterwards. You'll find the link to subscribe to the email in the show notes of this episode. We've made it really easy for you to unsubscribe because we're so sure that you'll like it. Be a progressive. Subscribe to The Progress Daily. One place where a lot of those conversations has been happening is in the Future Britain group. Mm. And for our listeners that don't know, you are the convener of the Future Britain group. Just explain to our listeners briefly how that came to be set up and why it's important to the Labour Party. Sure. So the Future Britain group is essentially a caucus within the Parliamentary Labour Party for Labour MPs who define themselves as social democrats or democratic socialists. Um, there's been a long tradition of these groups in the parliamentary party. You know, we have Tribune, for example. Um, we still have the socialist group, which initially was the backbench group that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell were part yeah. of. Um, and basically, they're just spaces where MPs come together to collaborate, uh, largely to think around policy suggestions and policy ideas. So Future Britain Group is doing that work. Mm-hmm. And the bit that I convene is that kind of policy process, as well as working with our deputy leader, Tom Watson, and some of the wider, wider work. Cool. Well, we've taken quite a lot of your time already. Just to finish, now this is a difficult quickfire question, so take your time. I can see you. <laughs> if you could pass one law, you're, you know, you're the executive for a day. It can be as ridiculous or as serious as you like. Is there a law that you've got in your back pocket? If you were to prorogue Parliament somehow, Dominic Raab style, and take control of the government, what's the one law that you'd pass? So if you'd asked me that a week ago, I would have said legislating for net zero carbon emissions, but the government's done that. I would probably <laughs> like to do it a bit quicker than 2050. Okay. But it would be sub- uh, the one thing I have in mind for a private member's bill is, is making the prime minister have to do a budget style report every year on our progress on meeting net zero. So I'd probably do that. Cool. That's pretty good. Well, Darren, thank you so much for speaking no to problem. us. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. 
You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.